Hey folks, this is To Know the Land, broadcasting for the Treaty Territories of the Mississauga of the Credit on 93.3 FM at the University of Guelph. Maybe you're listening to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you listen to your podcasts. It's a show about how we interact with the land, how we learn about the land, how we defend the land. My name is Byron, and on today's show I wanted to talk about walnut husk maggot flies. Walnut husk maggot flies. Why on earth would I want to talk about the walnut husk maggot flies? Well, if you've listened to the show in the past, you know I've done a couple episodes on black walnuts. I really love the black walnut trees. They're just so good. There's so many things about them that I think serve the landscape in such a good way. I wouldn't put them up there with oaks for the species, the number of species that they serve, but I think I have an affinity for them because they're so maligned. So, so many people don't like them. And if a lot of people don't like something, I try and investigate it and figure out why they don't like them. And then also try and find positives. And usually, usually what happens in that approach is I come to appreciate something more. I don't know. Maybe it's I've just got this natural adversarial quality to me. But... The black walnuts really fill that niche. And there's so many great things about them that I really like. And if there is a species that has such an intimate relationship with something I like so much, it behooves me that I should I should I should look into it. I should learn about that species because that species is important to that plant somehow, or that plant somehow is important to that species. And so if I want a relationship, I've got to learn about the other relationships that those I want relationship with are in. It seems like a matter of respect, a matter of uh, also beyond like respect. It, it seems like a matter of courtesy or, or just interest, like, if I say I had a crush on somebody and they have a good pal or another partner or something else, where, like good friends, I'd want to get to know their friends as well because I just want to know that person more. And you can learn so much more about someone when we learn about those to hang out with. And it's the same with animals in and plants and ecology in general, that everybody's connected. So why not learn about these connections and understand them more deeply and thus understand maybe our focus a bit more deeply? So if I'm focusing on the black walnut, why not learn about the black walnut maggot fly? Black, the walnut husk maggot fly, you know? It just seems to make a lot of sense to me, to me. I know maggots are off limits to a lot of people, you know, like, no, if it's a maggot, if it's squirmy, if it's small, if it's unexpected, that's a bit too much for a lot of people. But I think that, you know, having worked with walnuts for so long, I've come to see these maggots a lot every year. And then, you know, you start getting the curiosity. It starts to flow. So who are these individuals that I'm always finding in connection with this other bud of mine. So, uh, under at the requ or the question of a friend, it's like, who 
who are these maggots that we're finding? And I was like, you know, I see them every year. I, I haven't looked them up. I should look them up. I looked them up, and then I was going to do a show on uh, Palestinian uh, olive groves and what uh, colonization has done to those olive groves. And I, I hope to. I hope to get into that. Um, I actually think I just need a bit of a break from that news right now and just focus on other stuff as a as a mild distraction. And I, I wholly understand that that's a privilege to get to choose a distraction right now. And uh, I'm, I'm taking full advantage of that privilege in focusing on a larva of a fly um, instead. But I hope in future future weeks I can get to that and learn more about how the politics of the area has affected the land base and people's opportunities to access food, uh, traditional foods in that land. But on with the fruit flies. And pardon me if I'm sniveling, I've got a bit of a cold or the remnants of a cold. So I'm trying to do this show without much interruption, but I wanted to... I wanted to do it. I don't want to skip another week and not have a show. <coughs> so, Ragalitus suavis. Ragalitus suavis. One more time. Ragalitus suavis. The walnut husk maggot fly. Not to be confused with Ragalitus completus, completa, the walnut husk fly. Ragalitus completa but instead Ragalitus suavis, the walnut husk maggot fly. They both make maggots. They both infest the husks of walnuts. One is the walnut husk fly, Ragalitus completa, but the one I'm focusing on today, Ragalitus suavis, the walnut husk maggot fly. Walnut husk maggot fly. Just wanted to go over that a couple of times so we're clear going forward. They have about one generation per year. They overwinter as pupae in the soil at a depth of around one to, to four inches. They generally emerge as adults from mid-July. Actually, um, I looked up iNaturalist to see when the adults sort of emerged this year, when people started noticing them or at least cataloging them on, on iNaturalist. And July 18th was the first sighting in Hamilton, Ontario, which is a zone warmer than I am. So just so you know, the warmer climate zones may emerge a little bit earlier in the season, I'm assuming, from what I'm seeing on iNaturalist. But yeah, so let's say the adults emerge from mid-July until about mid-September. And so uh, I'll get back to how long they live and all that. The pupa in the soil uh, looks straw-colored. They're generally barrel-shaped. I've never found any, and a lot of my research will come from a couple of sources, which I'll link to on, at the bottom of the page. Um, the walnut husk maggot fly is a narrow, long, and white transparent colored, uh, fairly small maggot compared with the maggots I usually encounter, like the goldenrod gallfly, Eurostasalidaginus, or any of the acorn weevils that I usually find, which are thick and chunky. And I usually find about 30 to 40 maggots per nut, sometimes more, sometimes less. 
Uh, the emergence is usually in mid-July. Uh, females usually emerge first and then the males. And I'm wondering about that. Like, what is the, what is the biological purpose of females emerging first? It's not like they're making space or a nest or anything like that. And some species, would, like some species of birds would do that. They, females arrive back at, at an area to make a nest, like the sandpipers or whatever. Or usually the males come back to, to make territory, to defend territory, and then the females come. For most birds, that's what's happening. But I don't know why the females will, will emerge first. But it seems that way that the females are coming first. And then usually there's more females in July and then the more males later in the year. The lifespan of the fly, Regalitus suavis, Regalitus suavis, is about 30 to 40 days. And they're about, they're a little bit smaller than a house fly, maybe six millimeters long. Uh, they're brown on their, like a pale brown on the thorax, um, maybe a little bit yellowish. I've seen some pictures where it's a darker brown, like a mature red oak acorn, but kind of yellowy, um, with a yellow spot, a distinct yellow spot on the midsection of the body, or if you want to be more specific, on the scutellum near the caudal portion of the thorax or the back of the thorax. And speaking of the thorax, those the thorax are sparsely hairy around the edges if you're looking down at them. The abdomen is banded with dark horizontal bars and thin lighter lines between the dark bars. The eyes are beautiful bluey green and iridescent. The wings are also beautiful with dark banding along them, similar to a dark uh, to a, to a deer fly, but not blotchy spots like a big blotchy dark spot on a deer fly's wing, more so uh, with a long thick black line that waves back and forth and it kind of looks like an S shape of an elongated letter S and it'll be backwards on the left wing and forwards uh, correct on the right. So you might kind of look like a five as well if, if you think of it, a five or an S with a little tail coming out the middle of it towards the body of the fly. Yes, I'll, I'll have a fixed picture on the website and on Instagram. So however you find it, you'll see what I mean. Yes. Uh, mating occurs usually two to three weeks after, after the emergence of these flies, but can happen as early as eight days. I guess it's been recorded at eight days, so they're ready to hump. Uh, the females hang out. Oh, yeah. This is maybe why the females emerge earlier, that they they come out and they need nitrogen and proteins in their body uh, for egg production. And so what on the landscape could offer nitrogen and protein? Well, what's abundant nitrogen on the landscape? Well, it's scat. Scat. And, and for, for humans, our urine is full of nitrogen. And so if you think of those same sort of functions on the land, if you're up in a tree, where are you going to find scat? Well, bird scat and aphid scat, uh, otherwise known as honeydew. If you listen to the previous show, the honeydew 
mold, the honeydew fungus, the one that eats the honeydew. Everybody's after honeydew, it seems like. But yeah, so they'll go hang out on the bird scat and the aphid scat, and they'll consume it and get the nitrogen and proteins they need for making eggs, which is kind of cool. And I guess while females are doing this, if they're emerged, if the males are out and they've emerged, they tend to hang out on the walnuts themselves, the, the nuts, the developing nuts, and they wait around for the females, uh, and they wait till they're ready to mate. And while they're waiting, they may encounter other males, and the males can see be seen dancing together, or and or it might look like boxing together. So maybe they're boxing, maybe they're dancing. Who knows? I would love to imagine these flies as dancing, waiting around for mates, you know. Uh, maybe it's a dance-off battle. Who gets to hang around? I haven't read anything about whether they push each other off or or what. But, you know, they're hanging out. It's good. Mating and egg-laying usually happen later in the life cycle of the flies, but it varies from year to year and place to place. It can take about 30 minutes for the flies to mate. That's 30 minutes for flies. 30 minutes for flies. Uh you know, sometimes making out, it doesn't last 30 minutes, you know. Sometimes it does, and it's wonderful. Sometimes it's longer than 30 minutes, and it's getting a little boring. Um, and you're just like, okay, come on. But sometimes 30 minutes, that sounds good. But I imagine, like, for flies, for flies, think of that. Okay, I wonder about the math. If you live, how many days did I say? 30 to 40 days. So let's say 35 days. I'm going to pull up a calculator here. If you live 35 days, and we divide that by 24 for the number of hours in the day, and then uh, we divide that by, what would we divide that by? By 60. Man, I'm getting that wrong. Whatever. I want to know. I'm not good at math. Anybody's good at math. I just wonder how much of your life, if you mate for 30 minutes, or yeah, if you mate for 30 minutes and your lifespan is 35 days, how much, what is the equivalent of that in their life? Is that like if we, if we stretched out their lives to human age, how much time are they spending mating? I hope it's fun. I hope it's fun because that sounds like a long time. I've also learned a long time ago, an old friend wrote a poem uh, that it takes worms four hours, four hours to mate for a worm, which is incredible, quite incredible. Yeah. And then about a week later after they mate, the females fly around, they land on the, the nuts again, they puncture the husk with their ovipositor. Uh, usually, if you imagine a nut in the upper third of the nut close to the stalk. So if you start at the stalk and you sort of measure down one third of the way down the nut, within that section, that's where she usually deposits the eggs. And usually... The female lays about 15 eggs on the nut. Um, and after she lays 
that those eggs, there's about uh, maybe about two hours later, you can start to see a darker spot, kind of like a little bruise that develops on the area where she lays. But it might actually be hard to spot or hard to distinguish from any other damage that you might see um, on a nut. But it is there. And they seem to be placed about two to three millimeters below the surface. I watched a video of someone carving away at the surface to reveal the nuts, and that's what it looked like, two or three millimeters below. They start out white, and then they get darker. The eggs get darker as the embryos within them develop. And the egg shape reminded me of grasshopper eggs, if you've ever seen those. Uh, long, narrow, tapering at both ends, like tiny transparent grains of rice with tighter ends. Though the grasshopper eggs I've seen uh, were, were yellow. Uh, the walnut husk maggot fly eggs are white and then are kind of transparent and then they grow whiter. Or pardon me, they started white and then they grow darker with age as the embryos develop. Eggs hatch in about four to seven days. And then the maggots stay under the surface of the husk and they feed on the husk. They, they feed on the husk and they're small, uh, pretty translucent looking, pretty uh, dark, and then they get plump as they grow older. And they've got black mouth hooks. So if you've ever looked at a maggot before, and I have, I've looked at a couple of maggots. I've looked at blowflies, especially uh, on the To Know the Land YouTube channel, there's a video of us finding a snake. Well, we found a snake, and then we started recording because we realized the snake was moving, but the snake was obviously dead. So we cut the snake open, and you can see a blowfly uh, wriggle out and move and then crawl away until you can't see it on the camera anymore. But... When I looked at maggots like that before, I've, I've often wondered what these dark edges, and on some of the smaller maggots, there's a part of the maggot, okay, this might be too much, feel free to fast forward, I'm gonna talk about consuming maggots. When you consume some maggots, there's a little crunchy part, and what I've, what I've, noted, what I've learned about is that there's mouth hooks. There are mouth hooks on the animals, and I've never known that until I looked it up doing this research now. But I wonder if those are the crunchy parts that I can feel when I've eaten the maggots of different things, like the burdock neb or uh, Rosta solidaginis, or most recently the acorn uh, weevils. And these, these uh, mouth hooks are long, horn-like projections and you can actually use them to differentiate between different species of flies based on the shape, color, and size of these mouth hooks. And it's incredible. And while I was researching the mouth hooks, I found this uh, quote from the Australian Museum. And it says, maggots, i.e. fly larvae, are remarkable eating machines. Their front ends are armed with mouth hooks, which they rake in decaying flesh, shredding from the corpse. Their rear ends consist of a chamber in which their anus and posterior spiracles are located. They also have anterior spiracles. The spiracles are used for breathing. And the possession of spiracles in a posterior location means that maggots can breathe 
feeding 24 hours a day. Okay, first, let's break that, that statement down because it's a very interesting statement right there. It says that they have a breathing hole right beside their anus. Okay, I don't, I, what a hard life. Um, so there's a breathing hole directly beside their anus. And because it's all the way on the other side of their body, this breathing hole, and it's not connected to their mouth, they can breathe while continuously feeding for 24 hours a day. They don't have to stop to breathe. They can just keep eating and eating and eating and then breathing out their butt, you know, it's or the butt end. It's not their butt technically. But imagine if you can taste as well as when you're breathing to have your breathing spiracle, this, this orifice for taking in oxygen, directly beside this orifice for expelling waste what a life, you know, that, that'd be, that might be rough. I don't know. I don't know. But imagine, is it a good trade-off that you can eat 24 hours a day and grow so fast, so quick? You know, it's incredible. Like imagine the transformation of this gooey creature onto a fly. It's amazing. So, and I mean, not that it all happens in the maggot stage. It doesn't, it doesn't, but it's interesting. Maggots feed on the husks of the walnuts for three to five weeks. And then once mature, they drop from the walnut that's still up in the tree and they drop to the ground. They burrow in and they begin the pupation process. And that's just a still process under the ground. And the, like I said, I think I said before, the pupa are long, straw-like, straw-colored, uh, kind of barely uh, little pupa that you can like hold in your hand and they're just transforming in there in that pupil shell or pupil case. Most uh, larva or most pupa, yeah, most larva after pupation emerge as adults in the next summer, but some might hang out a little bit longer, up to two years or even more. And when I read that, I was like, whoa, okay, I wonder if this relates to the mast and nut production for the trees. So do they hold off pupating or hold off emerging as adults until there's a good nut crop because you know like today's or today this year is a great year for black walnuts in my area there's, there's year of plenty everything's doing well there was a great year for walnuts acorns apples it seems like there's a lot of fruit and a lot of food this year for a lot of animals so uh there was a lot of larvae to be found I wonder, can next year, when next year is probably going to be a bad year, because um, we're having a good year this year, and it usually goes in cycles of huge boom in, in mast, and then the next couple years, there'll be no or very little walnuts, and then a couple walnuts, and then the following year, maybe a bit more. I think it's three or four for walnuts, from what I've noticed. but. Um, yeah, are they timing this to do with the mast years? How do they know if that is what's what's happening? I don't know if that's what's happening. I'm going to have to pay a bit more attention, but wouldn't that be cool, the emergence of larvae? You know, we can tell from the nut production how well the larvae are doing, or maybe we can tell from the larvae how many flies are out, how, how well the nut production will be. When the maggots start feeding on the husk, there's a little dribble of dark fluid which sort of comes out the hole 
and it might be found on the side of the husk, like a little black drop or driblet, uh, which fell down the side of the water and that left a trail. And that's a sure sign of infestation. So if you're looking for like tracks and sign of these, uh, of these insects, the Ragolitas suavis and Ragolitas completa, um, this would be a good sign to look for that, that dribble, that dark dribble on the outside edge of the husk. And as they continue to feed, the inside of the husk turns black instead of it's like pale white or pale yellow. I guess the oxidization is what the yellow is having. It's not always yellow. The pale white husk turns black and it goes soft. And I've, I've seen this so often and I feel this so often. And these are usually uh, the easiest to rip apart by hand. And I've, I often rip apart the walnut shells by hand um, or, or by it with a knife as well. Uh, the outer husk looks fine though. Inside is where it turns black. Inside is where it breaks down. And this can stain the nutshell. Uh, this darkening, this blackening soft goo that's left behind as the, as the maggots consume the husk. And this staining of the nutshell could be a problem for commercial producers. Those who are growing things like uh, Juglans regia, uh, English or Syrian walnut. Though I think it's called both, mostly English walnut. Those are the ones that you buy in the store. Um, yeah, you're, you're not really buying black walnuts in the store. You're probably buying those Syrian or English walnuts. Juglans regia. King walnut. Yeah. And it stains the, the nutshell so they don't look so clean. And that's what people often buy. They buy them a whole. I remember when we were young, we'd see them around Christmas time at my house. And we'd get out the big nutcracker and break these big walnut shells. And they're so much easier on the Juglans Regia to get the nut meat out than it is on the black walnut, Juglans Nigra or Nigra, however you want to pronounce it. Um, so husk fly damage can harm the nut meat by causing them to shrivel if and or not fully develop if the infestation is bad and happens earlier in the season. Later infestations may stain the shells, but it doesn't harm or hinder the nut meat or the kernels. It doesn't affect them at all. But if it happens earlier, it can harm them. Um, Something else I learned about during the process of researching was that sunburn or blight damage on the walnuts leads to hard, dry husks, which are hard to get into. And I come across this all the time. It's the hard, dry husks. Can't get into them with your fingers. Hard to do with a knife. Very hard. And you're sort of like chipping pieces off of it. Whereas the walnut husk maggot fly damage usually ends up making the husk moist and soft, which I see a lot. And then when you, when you find that moist husk, uh, that's, that's dark and seemingly partly decomposed, then what's happening often is, uh, what's happening when you see the larva or when the larva is damaged by the walnut husk maggot fly, the drosophila 
maggots can start to emerge. And those are the more common fruit flies that we think of, the vinegar flies. And those can appear in the husks once they've fallen. And usually only if they've been damaged first by the walnut husk maggot fly. So Drosophila might be found on the on the walnut husks. And you know what? I'm I'm gonna do some more research because I got to a place in my research where I was like, oh man, am I mostly seeing the Drosophila? Or am I mostly seeing um the the Ragalitis, the Ragalitis suavis, or the Drosophila uh, fruit flies. So now I've got to start paying more attention. And sadly, we're, we're on the tail end of the walnut harvest season. So I'm going to still harvest some and look and maybe try and get an idea. But I don't think there's any left on the tree. And so most of what will be found on the ground will be those, those Drosophila fruit flies. So I'm, I'm curious. I'm going to try and figure it out. But how do we tell the Ragalitis suavis versus some other closely related uh, Ragalitis juglandius or Ragalitis completa? Well, I think the Ragalitis suavis is found in the East Coast or in the East where I am in Guelph, Ontario. I don't think Ragalitis completa is found around here, at least not according to iNaturalist or any other sources that I've been able to check. Um, another thing that I was looking at is the wing pattern. Uh, the Ragalitis suavis has that elongated uh, S look with the little appendage coming out towards the body in the middle of it, whereas Ragalitis completa has three separate lines. And they're they're... They're similar, but they're their own individual lines, at least mostly, because closer to, to the terminus of the wing, to the end of the wing, bent, uh, there's a bent line at the end of the wing so that it looks like two lines coming together to form the top of a triangle. So it's one line just bent forms like that triangle shape. So I, I'm going to remember it by the S, the whole S of one line, bent with the appendage coming out, creating an S shape, S for suavis, regolita suavis, which is uh, the walnut husk maggot fly. And regolitas completa is the walnut husk fly. And I'm talking, oh, you know what? They are so similar. They are very similar. There might be small sizes that are different, uh, small differences in the wing pattern but they're essentially doing a lot of the same thing to the walnut husks. And it's supposed that, you know, they might be separated because of glaciation. You know, when the glaciers, glaciers came down, the species were split apart for so long that they developed their own uh, species. But really, they're not even a, a sub... Some people don't consider them a, a different species. They consider them uh, variations or subspecies. Um, and those are two different things, but they, I've read, I've seen both of those in the literature. So something I need to learn more about. And if you're a fly expert, hit me up, teach me. I want to learn. And like almost any other insect on earth that I know about, they have some parasitic, parasitic wasps. There's at least two parasitic wasps that affect the Regalitas uh, completa and Regalitas suavis. And it's the Biosteres sublevis 
and the Coptera occidentalis. These are two wasps. One of them, the Biosteres sublevis, that goes after the larva, and the Coptera occidentalis. Not quite sure what they're what they're going. These are these these flies. These maggots are often considered a pest, and there's a lot of information online. Um, integrated pest management websites looking at how to control them or impact them so that they die and don't infect the walnuts. Um, but, you know, that's not where I'm at right now. That's not what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about just more like learning about them instead of trying to kill them. Um, and then there's so much more that I need to do to research, but I, I, I think that's going to take some time in the field, more photographs, more time here deciphering the photographs. And as, as I experience some more questions, and then I'm, I am led by my questions, so we'll see what happens there. But I'm curious about how, like, they seem to be native. Um, but some people say that the uh, Regalitas completa is non-native to the West Coast, but was brought to the West um, through through plants coming to the West. Because the Juglans regia, the English walnut, is not native. So maybe it's through transportation of those plants to the West that brought the insects. Juglans nigra, or nigra, uh, the black walnut, is native. So um, that's a it could be that the Regulatus suavis or completa or juglandus is native and you know it's just been kicking around with the black walnuts forever. So I don't know. But again, like I'm I'm encountering these animals because uh, this is the time of year where we harvest the walnuts for food and for craft and for medicine. Uh, the walnuts are very powerful in that regard. Like, so for, let's think of all the other animals. Um, turkeys eat walnuts. I remember in one of the, the manual of uh, ornithology put up by Yale University Press. I can't remember the year. But there was a note in there about wild turkeys crushing up to 24 black walnuts shells in their crop. Like, it's incredible because walnut shells are incredibly hard to break into, but um, if if the turkeys can do that in a couple hours, that's amazing. So, like, we know that turkeys are eating them. Squirrels, red squirrels, gray squirrels are eating them. I found a, uh, a, uh, a walnut husk recently. I was like, that looked like it was probably opened by a flying squirrel, but I couldn't. Couldn't be sure. So I'll just say red and gray squirrels. And then um, who else might eat walnuts? I'm sure there's lots of other species. In fact, you know what? I'm going to get out a book and I'm just going to check that out. So the book I got is uh, American Wildlife and Plants, A Guide to Wildlife Food Habits by Alexander Martin, Herbert Zim, Arnold L. Nelson. I think I've read from this a couple of times it's put out by dover publications and it's an older book 
it was published in 1951, and it, but it's really good. And it says that, um, what does it say? I'm going to just read the whole entry. Of the 12 species of jugglings in the world, six are native to the United States. Interesting. Six species. I never even knew that. Besides a widespread common black walnut, which extends through most of the east and partway to the prairies, there are two species of black walnut in California, two in the southwest. In addition, there is a closely related butternut or white walnut in the northeast. Doubtless, all of our native walnuts are useful to wildlife, but only the eastern black walnut has recognized importance. Four species of squirrels eat the nuts. Also, uh, woodpeckers, the red-bellied woodpeckers, have been recorded eating the nuts in Kentucky. Uh, beavers and squirrels, beavers in Mississippi, have been noted eating the wood. Squirrels, so fox squirrels, gray squirrels, and red squirrels. And I know about the black walnuts. Uh, the turkeys eating them from the other book I mentioned, Manual of Ornithology. And then... What does John Eastman have to say? This is John Eastman's uh, Book of Forest and Thicket. Right? That's what, yeah, Book of Forest and Thicket. And in the walnut section, he mentions that... Doo -doo -doo -doo, red squirrels, flying squirrels. It could be a flying squirrel. Yes! Amazing. Okay. Yeah. He says flying squirrels in here. I The only problem is he doesn't mention, he doesn't cite anything. So I can't go look at the paper where he learned that from. But mm, it's nice to be confirmed that someone else, even if it's not cited, that someone else also believes that flying squirrels may be consuming black walnuts. I wouldn't see why not. You know, maybe they are smaller and have smaller mouths. But if they break into the walnuts in a different way, why, why couldn't they? Why couldn't they just consume the black walnuts along with the other squirrels? Because it's probably very, it is incredibly nutritious. And so if here's this abundant food source on the landscape and your jaw can possibly find a way in, why not do that? I'm now checking out uh, Mammal Tracks and Sign by Mark Elbrock and Casey McFarland. And I'm going to go through every situation where I see a black walnut on the page and name the species. So there's one entry here for gray squirrels, another for red squirrels again. Is there any mention for anybody else? No, no, he has no other mentions or they have no other mentions of other species eating the walnuts. Lots for acorns, lots for hickory. Um, but none for walnuts. So I'm going to have to pay more attention and learn more about that because I want to know if the flying squirrels are also eating the walnuts this time of year. Because it could be. It could be. I know I'm eating the walnuts this time of year. And you have to husk them. And you husk them and you pull off as much of the goo as possible. And then you dry them out and then you can break them up. And when I've done it with a hammer and a brick in the past... It has taken me and my partner opening them up with a hammer and a brick at a good pace. It took about an hour to get one cup 
of nut meat. One hour to take to get one cup of nut meat. Now, since the pandemic, we have a walnut cracker uh, on loan from a friend. And that walnut cracker can speed up the process. But I haven't had such a good mast year as this year to really feel it out. So I'm going to see how well I do because I've been processing the nuts and drying them out. I'm also processing uh, acorns and drying them out and going to be processing them as as uh, flour soon. So partway through, mostly red, mostly red oaks. Um, but yeah, so I'll see how I do with that. For dye, I won't get into the dye bath making now, but pretty much you just break up the husks. You boil the husks for about 45 minutes. I do it over a fire and then get your fabric, some sort of natural fabric that you uh, soak it in water or dunk it in water. Make sure the water is thoroughly throughout the whole fabric. Wring it out so there's it's not dripping, but it's still wet or moist or damp or whatever the word is. And then throw it in your bath. Boil it again for a while, like 45 minutes to an hour, and then pull it out. And the natural tannins in the bark or in, in, the, in the walnut husks will dye the fabric. And it'll dye your hands while you're processing. My, I did this a few weeks ago, and my hands, at least my fingernails, still are dyed and dark-looking. And people are cautious at the grocery store when returning my money and my receipts because they don't want to touch my hands. Um, what else do I want to share with the walnuts? Oh, I could just go on. Find the other episodes about the walnuts. I've already been going on a lot longer than I thought because walnuts are just so cool. I know people don't like them because they're afraid that they're going to poison your garden. You won't be able to grow tomatoes. But try picking something else. What about raspberries? What about kale? What about, um, I don't know, elderberry? There's lots of other plants that can deal with the walnuts. You just got to look them up. And so, and then choose and then pick wisely. We have to work with our landscapes rather than get upset that they're not working for us all the time. And like, man, I love walnuts. They're also this transition plant. You know, they transition the fields to forests by growing in full sun. They don't tolerate shade very well. Um, and then they make space and shade for other tree species to come in and, and shrub species. They also possibly, from my observations, kill off buckthorn. So when they're growing next to the buckthorn, the allopathy in the black walnut is sometimes more powerful than the buckthorn, buckthorn can handle and starts to die. It's a slower death, but it kills them off. So why not grow this thing that's good for all sorts of wildlife in producing food for them, giving home to them, and, and transitioning a space from maybe open meadow buckthorn grove into open meadow or sunny meadow with walnuts and then you know intersperse those walnuts with red oaks because they'll probably grow well there and then you get an oak savanna you're, you're, you're on your way to an oak savanna it just seems like a, such a good plant and I don't know why people don't like them all this food and tools and medicine I keep saying medicine too and I think it's it's been used as a vermifuge I know that for sure and antifungal as well vermifuge means to expel worms um, but also antifungal so I just Here's this plant with so many functions. Why does might as well keep them around? And now that we know a little bit more about the walnut husk maggot fly and 
by results of the walnut husk fly. Uh, it just seems so cool, even cooler than I knew before. So let's go out and learn more about these plants and more about these animals and have a lot of fun in the process. Yeah, that's it. That's all I'm going to talk about for the show for the black walnut husk maggot fly. Um, if you want to learn more about the show, you can go to toknowtheland.com. If you want to hit me up, email toknowtheland at gmail.com, toknowtheland on Instagram. If you want to make a donation to the show, hey, Harry, thank you. Harry made a donation. I really appreciate it. It's, it's, it's noticeable. I love that. It's great. It's like, hey, somebody listens. Somebody gives a damn about the show. They like it. So that makes me happy. Thank you very much, Harry. If you want to give a donation, it's toknowtheland.com forward slash donate. It's always there. Do it now. Do it later. Whatever. Tell your friends about the show. I know people have been telling people about the show because people come up and tell me, oh, my friend told me about the show. And that's great. I ran into people at Papa Day who knew about the show. It was amazing. So, yeah. Check it out. Pass it around. Tell your friends. Correct me if I'm wrong. Who was it? Who was it? Somebody emailed me recently because I uploaded the wrong show by accident. And then um, they were like, yo, you got the wrong show on there. And they wanted to listen to the new show. And I was really stoked on that. And I was, I was Zook, Zook emailed me. And I was stoked on that. Please email me and, and let me know if I'm doing something wrong. That's great. Let me know. Okay, that's it. That's all. I'm done. Take care.